Last week, we looked at what Genesis chapters 1 and 2 have to say about God's design for male and female before the fall, before sin entered the world. And we saw a number of aspects to that design, all of which proceed from the nature of God himself. All of these components, if you will, of God's design for male and female are true of God in some, in some way. First, plurality. God created man, Adam, male and female. So he named the race Adam, and he named the man Adam, but that race, that representative of God created in his image is male and female. Equality. Equality as image bearers, male and female share equally the role of bearing the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says, In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Also, male and female are equal as agents of God in the exercise of dominion over his creation. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them, and God said to them, male and female, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. There is also, however, diversity in God's design for male and female, as there is in God himself. Male and female are different by God's design. As co-image bearers and as co-agents of God, the secondary roles and assignments appointed by God to male and female are not the same, and they are not equal. And that's played out in Genesis 1 and 2 in, in a multitude of ways. If you want to know what those ways are, go check out uh, the previous message. <clears throat> All of this was good. There was nothing evil in it, in, in, in this design that God uh, played out in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. Even in the God-ordained distinction of roles and authority between men and women, there was no such thing as selfish exploitation of the woman by the man. There was no such thing as resistance on the part of the woman against her husband's leadership under God. There was only love and unity and harmony and respect and clarity of purpose, just as had existed within the Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from eternity past. But the rebellion of the image bearers against God's word and against God's design came quickly. This morning, our task is to take a look at what happened once sin entered the world. What happened to this design, this perfect design that God had for men and women? Now, the first sin of mankind that's laid out for us in Genesis 3 is traditionally referred to as the fall. I consider that to be one of the greatest understatements of all time. Because the sin of Adam and Eve turns out to be the most epic crash and burn of all time. The splat would probably be a more descriptive name for it. Among many other devastating consequences, the very first sin wreaked havoc on the relationship between men and women. 
both in the nature of the sin itself and in the consequence, the God-imposed consequence of that sin that God himself calls the curse. He's better at naming stuff than we are. The curse, that, that name's entirely ad- adequate and accurate. Ever since that first sin, the curse of death, decay, corruption, and even the continuation of sin itself has applied to all people and to all parts of God's creation. Now, I want to clarify in advance one important aspect of what we're going to see regarding the curse and its impact on the relationship between male and female. I believe without hesitation that the curse ensures that the conflict between male and female will persist until Christ returns and makes all things new. And I believe that in some respects the curse even intensifies that conflict between men and women by God's design. And bear with me on this, and I'll try to explain what I'm talking about. We're going to get to it, to that that intensification of the conflict shortly. But at this point, what I want to point out is that I believe that intensification is very much in keeping with other things that we find in Scripture, like God hardening Pharaoh's heart in Exodus chapter 4 and 7 and 9 and 10. Or God blinding the eyes of the Israelites and closing their ears for a time so that they will not see and will not hear and will not repent. God's determination to allow our sin to run its course and even His determination to allow that sin to increase does not make God complicit in our sin, nor does it make Him the cause of our sin. But be sure of this, God is sovereign over our sin, just as He is sovereign over all things. And He most certainly works to accomplish eternal good even through our sin. If you don't think that's legit, read what Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 45 and Genesis 50. I want to briefly share a passage from an article in which John Piper quotes the great 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards. Here's the quote. God is, as Edwards says, the permitter of sin and at the same time a disposer of the state of events in such a manner for wise, holy, and most excellent ends and purposes that sin, if it be permitted will most certainly and infallibly follow. What he's saying is God permits sin for a reason, and when he permits it, it is certain that it will occur. He uses the analogy of the way the sun brings about light and warmth by its essential nature, but brings about dark and cold by dropping below the horizon. Here's Edward's words. If the sun were the proper cause of cold and darkness, it would be the fountain of these things, as it is the fountain of light and heat. And then something might be argued from the nature of cold and darkness to a likeness in the nature of the sun. Is that? Are you with me? This is amazing stuff. <laughs> in other words, Edwards is saying, sin is not the fruit 
of any positive agency or influence of the Most High, but on the contrary, it arises from the withholding of His action and energy, and under certain circumstances, it necessarily follows on the want of His influence. By want, He means lack. What He's saying is this. And by the way, the analogy of light and darkness is a really good one because it's one that God uses and applies to Himself. John 1 verse 5, 1 John 1 verse 5 says, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So here's the deal. What is required to ensure that a room will be dark? Yeah, take the light away. Does the light cause the darkness? The absence of light causes the darkness. Just as darkness is the absence of light and cold is the absence of heat, sin proceeds from the withholding, with the withholding of the holiness imparting influence of God in the sinner. Nothing more is required to ensure that sin both persists and increases. Does that make sense? Okay, that's kind of foundational to where we're, what we're going to see. All right. How did sin and the curse of sin impact the relationship between men and women? Here's what, here's what the narrative in Genesis 3 says. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now the, the word yet there in that second clause probably doesn't belong there. It's the same word that's used in the third clause where it says and. It's just there are three things here. God will multiply the woman's pain in childbirth. Her desire will be for her husband, and her husband will rule over her. I'm sure there have been many women in the course of history who on that first point have seriously wondered why God didn't come up with a better process for getting a baby out of a mother's womb. Genesis 3 gives us God's answer to that question. And the answer is that he intended it to be every bit as painful as it is. He had a perfect purpose for that pain. Every time a mother gives birth to a child, God is presenting a vivid and unforgettable reminder to the woman and to the man that pain and bloodshed came about in the first place because of sin. The very process by which a new life is ushered into this cursed world reminds us that the reason life under the curse begins with pain and is filled with pain from then on is because of our sin. But there's an upside, there's a positive aspect to the same picture because that pain results in a new life. Both pain and bloodshed are part and parcel of a woman's ability to bear a child. And both are an unavoidable part of bringing that child into this world. Now, there are two kinds of birth, of course, spoken of in Scripture. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like the first birth, the second birth demands pain and the shedding of blood. 
But there is only one man's suffering. There is only one man's blood that availed to bring about that second birth. To purchase forgiveness and eternal life for men and women. And that man, of course, is the perfect man and perfect God, Jesus Christ. I believe that in all respects, in all aspects, the curse is a memorial for us not only of the heinousness and destructiveness of our sin, but of the marvelous grace of our God. Even in God's curse against Satan, he speaks of the son of the woman who will bruise the head of Satan. And in the curse against the woman that ensures that pain and bloodshed will inevitably be part of childbirth, God reminds us not only of our sin, I believe, again, at the same time, he points us to the cross. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. For purposes of this message, we're going to focus mostly on the second and third aspects of this curse, the ones that, that most touch on the relationship between the man and the woman. First, the first of, uh, of those two aspects of the curse is that God says to, to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. Now, why would that statement be part of the curse? Isn't it good for a woman to desire her husband? <laughs> well, this is one of those cases in which context is everything. Because in the very next chapter, just a few verses later, God uses almost the exact same Hebrew wording. And by the way, it, it comes right through in the English wording as well. And he's talking about something that puts this statement in a very different light than, than we would think it should have uh, at first glance. Genesis 4 begins with the story of Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam. And to cut to the chase, Cain was envious and very upset with his brother Abel because God had, had accepted Abel's offering, but he had had no regard for Cain's offering. So verse 5 says, Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Literally, his face fell. And then the narrative picks up in verse 6, and it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you but you must master it. Sin's desire is for you, but you must master it. And uh, it's a really uh, interesting book. It's got a lot of great articles in it. The Dance Between God and Humanity, Bruce Waltke. Uh, thanks, John Marr, for bringing it to my attention. There's an article that, that Walt, Waltke presents about this issue of the conflict between men and women. And he structures, he lays out the structure of these two verses, Genesis 3.16 and Genesis 4.7, as you see up here on the board. The parts and pieces line up with amazing consistency. And the conclusion is that if we look at what God is saying in the use of the phrase, sin's desire shall be for you, we come away with, a different understanding in, ver in chapter 316. Sin is crouching at the door, 
And its desire is for Cain. What does that image mean? It's very vivid, right? It's like an animal crouching, ready to pounce, ready to take control, ready to dominate, to have its way with Cain. The very next verse says, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. So sin won. Genesis 3.16 tells the woman, your desire will be for your husband. It's not talking about a woman's sexual desire for her husband. It's not talking about her affection for her husband. It's talking about the woman's very earnest desire to dominate her husband, to control her husband for her own selfish purposes. I believe that any honest observer, whether male or female, has to acknowledge that that pattern is amazingly prevalent in relationships between men and women to this day. Women do not inherently like being required to follow their husband's lead. And of course, in today's world, even many professing Christians fearlessly declare that women are not required by God to do so. That such notions are archaic or are based on an illegitimate interpretation of the text of Scripture, and therefore they have no place even in Christian marriages. Men and women are then presumed to be equal in every respect, in every role, in every assignment. I won't attempt to entertain or to refute such arguments. I'm going to simply refer you to my favorite rendering of one of the core rules of biblical interpretation that I heard many years ago from a a dear old devoted Bible teacher named Vance Havner. He said, if the plain sense makes good sense, any other sense is nonsense. Beyond that, I'll leave it to the Holy Spirit either to confirm or to refute my understanding of these passages. I don't think they're unclear in the least. One other point that ought to be mentioned here. I've often heard it said by godly Christian women that when a husband leads with godly love, it makes it easy to submit to his leadership. I believe that's a good statement if you change the word easy to easier. Here's why. It is very important that we recognize the distinction in Genesis 3 between sin and the curse of sin. Eve, who was deceived into following Satan's lead, which contradicted the explicit declaration of God, then enticed her husband to follow her lead. And he did. That's a description of Eve's sin, not of the curse. But the God-imposed curse against the woman intensifies and extends that same sin. To every woman, God says, here's how it's going to work from now on. You will earnestly desire to dominate your husband. And then he also says, and your husband will rule over you. A godly woman will never downplay the universal nature of that curse or the serious implications of that curse. Yes, Jesus frees us from the penalty and the power of sin even now, and we're going to talk about that a little later in this message and in the next. 
But any woman who thinks it's going to be easy for her to overcome her tendency to dominate her husband for her own selfish purposes would do well to carefully guard against complacency because nobody's exempt from the curse. Forewarned is forearmed, and knowing how you're prone to act (laughs) because you're still doing battle against the flesh daily is powerful ammunition against those very sinful tendencies. Satan is relentless. The world that follows hard after Satan is relentless. And the pull of the flesh is relentless. So we must be relentless in our vigilance. And that means we we must keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of faith. All right, God tells every woman that she will be prone to dominate her husband. And then he tells the woman that her husband will be prone to make it even harder for her to overcome that propensity because her husband will rule over her. The word translated rule over is used very, very, very often in the Bible to refer to the absolute rule and dominion of a king over his subjects. The husband will cling to control over the woman every bit as fervently and every bit as selfishly as the woman will seek to take it away from him. Instead of being predisposed to lead his wife with godly love and with her well-being in mind, he will be predisposed to rule over her as if he's the king and she's the subject. If these both sound more like sins than they do like curses, that shouldn't surprise us because, again, the greatest curse that God can ever impose on us is to remove the light, to let us have our own way. And every time that happens in the Bible, every time He lets us have our own way, the mess that we make of things because of our sin gets worse and worse. Just read Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. All right. So the two parts of the curse against the woman that directly impact the relationship between the man and the woman are first, she will seek to dominate her husband for her own selfish purposes. And secondly, her husband will rule over her for his own selfish purposes. Doesn't sound like a very promising state of affairs, does it? It isn't. That's why it's called the curse instead of the blessing. And if that's not enough, there's a third aspect of the curse that contributes to this ongoing enmity between men and women. Look at God's preface to the curse against the man, Adam. The very next verse. Then to Adam God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, look at that cause, that because clause. What's first? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. God makes a connection here that we don't quite expect. He says the reason work is so blasted hard and frustrating isn't only because Adam ate the fruit that God had forbidden him to eat, It is also because when he did so, he was following his wife's lead instead of leading with love. Instead of heeding the crystal clear words of God who said, Do not eat that fruit because in the day that you do, you will surely die. The man heeded other words. He listened to the voice of his wife 
Eve, being deceived, followed Satan's lead. But Adam, instead of acting in his appointed role as the head of the woman under God, instead of leading in his marriage out of love first for God and then loving love for his wife, and thereby shutting down that course of action before it infected him, the head of the race, He instead foolishly set aside that sacred assignment and he followed his wife's lead. And that has been part of the pattern of the sin of men ever since. It might seem paradoxical that God would tell Eve that part of the curse against her is her husband will rule over her and then immediately tell Adam, you have a really bad tendency to follow your wife's lead. But when you look under the hood, (laughs) all of these manifestations of sin fit into an underlying motivation that always accompanies sin. And that motivation is plain old-fashioned selfishness. There is a pattern to the sinful behavior of men that's repeated in households all over the world on any given day. In one moment... The man lets his wife drag him around by the ear, and in the next moment he becomes demanding and tyrannical, and in far too many cases he becomes abusive toward his wife. How can one man bounce between those two extremes so readily? I believe the solution to that apparent paradox is actually very straightforward. Men and women who are dead in their sins and even redeemed men and women who are walking by the flesh rather than by the Spirit do in any given moment whatever serves their self-indulgent purposes. Selfishness doesn't have to act with any consistency to be consistently selfish. And Shelley sells seashells by the seashore. I could say the first one, but I couldn't say the second. When the man's priority is on getting physical gratification or on getting anything that requires his wife's favor, he turns to clay that his wife can mold any way that she wants to. But as soon as she gets in the way of whatever it is that he sees as most desirable in a given moment, he switches on the might-makes-right module of male sinfulness, and he simply overpowers her to get his way. Selfishness does not have to act with any consistency to be consistently selfish. Godliness, on the other hand, is consistent. In my 40-plus years as a believer, I've heard it said many times that Christians are as messed up as non-Christians when it comes to this kind of stuff. To the folks who make that declaration, I can only say, you clearly have not known the same Christians that I've known. One of the things that makes a Christ follower stand out like a sore thumb is the consistency of his words and actions. And I've been blessed beyond measure to know many men and women who very predictably set aside aside their own well-being in order to honor God and to love God and to love men, to love people, and first among people to love their spouses. Sure, they stumble, they get it wrong at times. Sometimes they act very selfishly. But one of the things that's very predictable about the one who who desires earnestly to be submitted to God is that he does not stay on that path very long. He gets back on the path of life quickly 
And because that path is a straight line that points to Christ, it produces great consistency. And that brings us to the last top-level outline point of this series on male and female. We'll be looking at this important topic for the rest of this message and the next, and that is the restoration of God's design in Christ, God's design for men and women. Our goal, our end point in this series, is to understand from God's Word how the God-ordained similarities and differences between men and women are supposed to manifest themselves in the church. Hence the title of the series, Male and Female in the Body of Christ. But before we examine what it means to be male and female in the context of of the church of God's redeemed people, we should first consider what the New Testament tells us about being male and female in the context of marriage as God's redeemed people, because that's where it all starts, right? That's the context in which the relationship between male and female was first fleshed out. That's a theological pun. And it is in that context that we find principles and patterns of godliness that transfer directly over to the way things are supposed to work in the church, not just between men and women, but at every level of authority and submission within the church. There are some very important similarities between those two contexts, marriage and the church. In marriage and in the church, God places different people with very different ways of thinking and acting of feeling and feeling into an amazing partnership that binds them together as one. That's true of both those contexts. With the result in marriage that the new entity, the the one flesh between one man and one woman, is greater and more useful to God in many ways than the sum of its parts or than any either of the individuals. In very much the same way, in the body of Christ, God creates a powerful and sacred unity out of God-ordained diversity. And once again, the new creation called the church, the body of Christ, is greater and more useful to God than the sum of its many parts or than any individual. The master in both of those relationship contexts is Christ. He's the head over every marriage and he is the head of his body, the church. And at the first level of authority and submission in both those contexts, we as image bearers and agents of God are subordinated to that head, to Christ. At the second level of authority and submission, both in marriage and in the church, the man is appointed by God to act as the head of the woman under Christ's head. The woman's willingness to submit to Christ is treated by God as a function of her willingness to submit to her husband in the context of marriage. That divine design was badly corrupted at the fall, but it is restored in Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is where all the controversy arises, (laughs) whether the topic is marriage or the church. The notion that any distinction of authority and submission persists in the church and in marriage is an increasingly unpopular notion. In fact, it's a despised notion. But as we've looked at before, there is no controversy in the mind of God and there's no confusion in the Word of God 
Ephesians chapter 5, using marriage as the template. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, verse 22. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Now, there may be some question about how exactly that all works out, but that's a pretty clear statement of hierarchy, is it not? Christ first, the man under Christ, and the woman subordinated to the man. If you don't like the word subordinated, try the word submitted. I don't care what word you use. It's a hierarchy. It's authority and submission. Just the, the fact that the world hates those words does not mean that God's people should hate them. Because I remind you again, authority and submission exists within the Godhead. As the church is subject to Christ, verse 24, also, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Look Look at the selflessness of that love. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. For this cause, and then Paul points right back to Genesis 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage has always and only, in the eyes of God, been one man and one woman creating one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Marriage on earth is a picture of a greater reality, and that's the relationship of Jesus Christ to his bride, and that's us. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his wife, even his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. In a nutshell, God commands, God's commands to wives and husbands are these. Wife, humbly and willingly submit to your husband as the outworking of your submission to Christ himself. Husband, love your wife just as Christ loves his church and gave himself up for her. And by the way, it says just as Christ loved his church. You know why it's past tense? Because God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is the proof of the love of God. It is amazing how many wives and husbands act as if those instructions are unclear. (laughs) As if they don't have enough information to understand how it's supposed to really work. So they brush aside these very direct instructions from God and they proceed to come up with their own terms for marriage. And when they do, marriage hits the skids every time. There are a couple of things in this great passage that we must not miss that very directly transfer over to the relationships between men and women in the body of Christ. First, the man's authority as the head of the wife is to be exercised sacrificially and in love, never selfishly. 
Husband, her, her well-being, not yours, is to be the focus of your attention and action. Jesus gave himself up for his church, for his bride. So you are to give yourself up for your wife. And there's a goal in that sacrifice, and it is the sanctification of your wife. It is that she may be presented holy and blameless and spotless before Christ. Howard Hendricks, the much-beloved Dallas Seminary professor who went home with the Lord just last year after teaching for 61 years, has a, he, he had a truckload of stories about conversations he had had with seminary students over those many years. And I remember him recounting one of those stories in which a student came to him with a heartfelt confession and said, Prof, I think I love my wife too much. Dr. Hendricks, without hesitation, said to him, Well, as far as I can tell, you haven't died for her yet. <laughs> and the young man stared at him for a moment and then said, uh, No, sir. To which Prof. Hendricks then said, okay, then don't worry, you don't love her too much. Jesus laid down his life for his bride, and he is the perfect and preeminent husband. Certainly, it's possible to mess up your marriage because you have a wrong definition of love. But men, if you are loving your wife with Christ as your example, you can never love her too much. Because before you'd ever get to that point, you would be among the dearly departed. (laughs) Deb and I watched the new Disney animated movie Frozen last Friday. And there were a couple of points in that movie that made my jaw just drop in surprise. One was when Anna, the lead character, said, I don't even know what love is. And then Olaf, this very joyful little snowman to whom she was speaking, replied to her saying, Oh, that's okay. I do. Love is putting someone else's needs before yours. When's the last time you heard that from a Disney production? And Olaf said those words as he was consoling Anna in front of a fire that he had started to save her from freezing to death. And of course, in that same moment, he was doing what snowmen do when they stand in front of fires. They actually got it right. And I won't give the plot away in case you haven't seen it yet, but when they finally get to the end of the movie where Disney always goes, and that is to the proof of love, they actually got that right also. And you know what? It wasn't love's first kiss. Your wife, husband, your wife, is the object of your love with the goal of pursuing her well-being, not yours. Your well-being is God's problem. Her well-being is your problem under God. Her sanctification, her growth in godliness, not your comfort or your pleasure or your way of doing things, is constantly to be the goal that governs how you lead her. Romans 15.3 says, Jesus did not please himself, but bore the reproaches that men hurled at God in order that we might be saved, and the slave is not greater than his master. The man's authority as head of the wife is to be exercised sacrificially and in love, not selfishly. And the wife's submission to her husband as her head under Christ is to be lived out with humility and respect, not with resistance and resentment. And by the way, you're not going to find any culturally endorsed illustrations of that one. Because the world forces of this present darkness see submission as an evil, not as a virtue. 
Unless, of course, it's the man submitting to the woman. That makes great fodder for movies. Man, a man can't even rescue a woman in the movies anymore. <laughs> now, I understand completely why it is not easy for my dear wife to submit to my leadership in our marriage. Because that puts her in the very dubious position of having to suffer the consequences of my flawed and often sinful judgment. But you know what? God has addressed that fear head on. In 1 Peter 2 and 3, Peter instructs slaves to be submissive to their masters even when their masters are unreasonable and unjust. In chapter 2, verses 13 to 20. Then just a few verses later in chapter 3, He says this to wives. He says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And then a couple of verses later, verse 6, thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, if there was ever an opportunity in the Bible for the writer to lay out for us the list of caveats, of exceptions, that would exempt a woman from having to submit to her husband, this would be the the passage to do that, right? But that list is missing from the text. Indeed, the only exception you'll find anywhere in Scripture that justifies a believer's refusal to submit to and to obey those whom God has placed in authority over him or her is when the one in authority is demanding that that believer do something God has strictly forbidden. The book of Daniel provides a couple of vivid examples of that principle, such as when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rightly refused to worship an idol that had been set up by King Nebuchadnezzar. The principle is simple. When there's a conflict between what God has commanded and what someone in authority over you has commanded, God wins. But what about when the person over authority is in authority over you is your husband and he's not telling you to do something God forbids? He's just being sinful and foolish and it's making things really hard for you. What if he's being irresponsible with your family's money and you're at risk of of having to deal with serious debt? What if he's neglecting you and the kids because he's busy indulging himself with video games or endlessly watching college basketball while you slave over cooking meals and tending the children and doing laundry day after day? Did that one strike a nerve? What if you have understandably made your case with him to encourage him to change his behavior for Christ's sake, but he's not having any of it? Why in the world should you have to let him continue to make decisions that affect you? Isn't that craziness? Sounds like masochism. Well, it would be if your well-being actually depended on the quality of your husband's judgments and actions, but it doesn't. Look again at 1 Peter 3, verse 6. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. What happened to the fear? 
How can you possibly be unafraid when your husband is acting like your well-being doesn't matter to him at all and God is commanding you to submit to him anyway? Isn't that a fearful situation? Well, God's very straightforward answer is in the part of the passage I skipped. So let's look at it. Right between his instructions to slaves to submit even to bad and unjust masters and his instructions to wives to submit even to husbands who would flunk any husband test, God says to the believer, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You know what happened to Jesus who submitted to the will of his Father with full confidence that his Father always judges righteously? The next two verses tell us what happened. His Father's righteous judgment fell upon him so it wouldn't fall upon us. And he he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And beloved, that's where the fear, that's where the fear of submitting on God's terms fades away and gives way to peace. Wives, there is only one person in control of your well-being, and it isn't your husband. It's the one who withheld nothing not even his own precious son's life, to secure your well-being for all eternity. Whatever you think well-being is, whatever you feel like it is in a given moment, this you can know with 100% certainty. If you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, God has you covered. Nobody can change that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Every single day that you count that to be true and act on that truth, you will find that godly submission is submission with no fear attached. And that submission becomes powerfully useful in the hands of God in the life of your husband, in the lives of your children, in the life of your church. And yeah, it becomes very useful to God in the lives of people who don't even yet know Jesus Christ and they look at you and they say, I want that. We're going to stop there this morning and next time we're going to go to the the next stage of this, and that is how all this applies in the body of Christ. And we're going to look at some passages that lots of people fuss about. But I, I pray that everything we've seen in these, these two messages thus far, that you'll bear it in mind because it undergirds, it explains everything God has to say about authority and submission within the church. I'm sorry I went late. Let me pray quickly. Loving Father, Thank you for this dear body. Thank you for these brothers and sisters who have impacted my life, my wife, my wife's life, my children's life so dramatically over the last almost 30 years. I pray, Lord, that we all may be submitted to you in our marriages and, Lord, 
in our life together as the body of Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen.